Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Almost Founders Podcast, the practical podcast for young learners interested in the world of entrepreneurship. We are beyond excited to announce that we're partnering with the Peking University HSBC Business School. On Saturday, November 7th at 11 a.m., their UK center will be holding a thought-provoking webinar about US-China relations post-US election. If you want to find out more about that, you can visit our website at almostfounders.com. On the very same website, you can also sign up and become a member of our community. Today, we're discussing about putting your idea into action. Helping us will be David Stubbs, founder and CEO of Ride in Them, the company that is completely disrupting the insurance claims industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another event of Almost Founders. With us today is David Stubbs founder of Writing the award-winning software-as-a-service insurance claim platform. It's great to have you here, David. Could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, surely. I left university uh, in 83 and joined, joined Ford Motor Company as a graduate trainee. I, w- I was there three years, and then I joined um, the number two in the market at the time, which was Rover Cars. I was there uh, 13 years. After a secondment to BMW, um, I found myself back in the UK without a job because of Rover. Those of you who are historians of business will know didn't do terribly well. I found myself back in the UK and uh, with an MBA from Warwick and working for AT Kearney in consultancy. But following, I think, my um, second my second. Um, managed project where I was I was the manager I had the great fortune to crash my car I, I, I wrapped an old sports car around a telegraph pole on my way to the railway station one morning and because I'm a very odd person as I climbed out of the out of the out, out of the wreckage I had this sudden thought on what the claim will be like it was that it turned out that the claim was deeply deeply dreadful I, I wondered how it was an insurance company could have a guy on the phone to me talking about my vehicle and know absolutely nothing about either my car or valuing vehicles in, in general. Because I was with AT Kearney, I, um, I was able to do some research into this and talk to some insurance companies ab- ab- about this part of the market. And I found some really remarkable things. Um, I found that it was about five to 600,000 vehicles a year. So about five or 600,000 people were having similar conversations to me every year. And I also found that typically people got far more money than their car was worth. But they finished the process hating the insurance company because of the way in which the conversation was structured with a thousand pounds more than their car was worth. And I, I wondered, how is it that an industry can maybe 600,000 times a year give somebody a thousand pounds more than their vehicle is worth, do the numbers in your head, they're frightening, and still find its customers hate them. So I set up a company called ETWB and within three years I had 50 staff and we, were, we turned over I think four million pounds um, and bottom line, two million, just absolutely incredibly successful meteoric growth. Remember, this isn't a tech company, uh, but I became pretty much the, the oh, I, was, I was certainly the biggest. I was the only specialist total loss um, claims company in the UK. So, so you asked me about me, and I define myself by the things that I've done, which is probably quite significant from the, from the perspective of, of entrepreneurs and startup. Um, I, I guess if I looked at it a different way, I could tell you that I'm, uh, I'm a behavioral scientist who just happens to work in startup and, and is continually amazed that, that uh, companies take decisions about how people should act or how they would prefer people to act without doing any, any basic research or, or having any understanding as to how we each of us act in different circumstances. 
that that's that's a lot to take in for now and it was very <laughs> no don't be sorry i mean it, it's a crazy journey to be honest i mean i feel like you decided to go into startups because you didn't really want any bigger boss above you telling you what to do i know i think uh, i went into startup because um not because i wasn't particularly good at being a corporate guy um there were some situations that i was immensely good at in corporate life and i was rewarded accordingly i went into startup because i had an idea um, that a, a business situation was being handled very, very badly by the industry and that the solution was so fucking stupidly simple that even I could do better than the rest of the insurance industry. And I found I loved it. Um, I, I, I loved the immediacy of startup life. I, I loved the lack of, well, there is a lot of bullshit, but I, I loved the way the bullshit was different to corporate life, that people... Um, People lived or died um, in, in, in that sense by, by what they did every day. And there was less about tidying over the weeks and months till I get my pension and more about how can we make something massively different and have some fun along the way. Powerful stuff, uh, but it serves as a pretty perfect segue to what we want to get to today. Um, a lot of our past podcasts have emphasized the idea of testing and conducting sufficient research. But today we want to find out when we break through those walls of testing and when we go ahead and build a product slash service where the primary intention is no longer testing, but selling. As in like, when do we put ourselves out there, right? And to get the ball rolling, when was it that you took the step and decided to go ahead and build? In some ways, we our, our position was different to many of the many of the um, the, the the kind of um, business ideas you'll come across because we we were selling we were selling a business to consumer product to businesses. So we weren't looking to be Facebook, we weren't looking to be Amazon, we weren't looking to uh, set up our own website that people would go to and and run their claims. What we wanted to do was to uh, was to be the solution provider for insurance companies for for first of all motor claims and, and then subsequently other verticals. So uh, the pitch we made to the insurance companies in the first instance is, look, we think we've got this. We absolutely think we've got this, and you know, and here's the rationale for it. Here's some examples from other industries. Here's here's you know, here's some basics of behavioural science. We think we've got this, but the build that we do to run your claims will be a test build. And the advantage that you have is that you will be in at the beginning. So the learning that we get from this will be your learning. You will be ahead of your competitors. So if you think there's any merit in our idea at all, um, basically join our test team. So the key thing in our instance was to get a minimum viable product out, something that we could learn from. And even if it didn't work in every instance, we would then start making changes. Because because in, in a... In a mass market product like an insurance claims, you're not going to get it right first time. And a lot of the decisions you take as to the design of the product will prove to be wrong. You just have to understand why they're wrong and how you can best change them. Okay, so a great thing for everyone to know is that when someone invests in your startup, they will want to know exactly what you will use the money on. So you don't just walk up to investors and say, invest, they will ask you what for, what do you want to use the money on? And you needed that money to build that MVP that you would then get out. But what I want to get to is what did the investors get from you to have the confidence to give you the money that you needed to start building? What did you do to convince them that you are ready? They could have just told you that, okay, this is not enough research. Go ahead and do some more. But why were they willing to accept your research that you've done so far? There were some very interesting conversations in that space. Um, one of the questions you'll always see, or, or if, you, if you go to the how to be an entrepreneur course, 
um, there'll be there'll be something which says you know tell the tell the customers the investors why you are better than your competitors uh, and um we 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 got into real problems there because there was absolutely nobody in our space. Um, a guy said to us, "If you're saying you haven't got competitors, it's because you you haven't done proper market research." And um, my answer was quite long, but was was pretty much of the of the sense, you know, in the space of listen, stupid. I've spent the last year of my life investigating this space, and there is nobody in there. And several of the guys that came forward and invested in this admitted that they'd done enormous amounts of due diligence just to find a competitor, and they couldn't, they couldn't find it. What the, what the guys are, in, are investing in is the idea to an extent. They, you know, they, they, they believe that what you're talking about has merit. There's enough people who want to live that way or to work that way, and there's enough money in the space to make it to make it a, a viable product. Guy, a guy I used to work with uh, said, yes, there's a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? And we, so you have to prove that that's the case. Fundamentally though, they're, they're, they're not investing in a, um, a kind of shopping list of things that you'll spend the money on. I mean, they want to see that you've, you've actually done that. You know, you've worked out that uh, an office is gonna cost you this much a month, you need to eat, so there's this much money for that. But fundamentally, they're, they're looking for the team and they want, you know, ideally it's the three people you know, that are presenting to them. They're looking, if these guys are wrong, and yes, they are wrong about something, we just don't know what it is that they're wrong about yet, have they the smarts to sit back and work out a new strategy and restructure and get it right on, with, with the revamp? Do we believe these guys? So typically, does at least one of them know something about the industry in which they're, in which they're, they're looking to disrupt? Now, in, in the case of myself and my chums, I was the guy uh, and specifically, I knew nothing about the insurance industry as a whole, but I was pretty much the best guy on claims uh, that, that had ever walked into the room. So that was at least in, at least in auto. So that was that was that was the good thing. We that was the team. So we, an ideas guy, a, a kind of consolidator guy, and a tech guy. Um, we probably would have done a little bit better in the race if we had a money guy in the room as well. But Graham could also cover that role to an extent. Um, so people are looking. People are looking for a number of things. That then they are looking that you've got a detailed plan to spend the money, but they're not necessarily looking for you to run that detailed plan, because it's 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 a bit like um, imagine they're giving you the money to bet on football matches, and you say, okay, this is the these are the bets we're going to make over the next six months. Um, nobody expects you to stick to that strategy if, if you notice that some of the teams that you, you were going large on in the first months were losing big. They'd want you to reevaluate re the strategy. So the investors were looking for guys who seem to know what they're doing. Okay. Um, from, from the way I heard that, you said that at some point you have said that, okay, we have done so much research on this. We know everything about this. And this is, this is quite dangerous, right? Because knowing when enough is enough is really dependent on the person. So to put it into an entrepreneurial learning context, you can't think that you are smart enough and that you know enough about the industry, but be honest with yourself. When do you really know enough? And in, in some way, you have said before that the money that the investors have given you is for a testing product, so for an MVP. And if we look at it in this sense, if someone is willing to put this amount of money into an MVP for you, then every product you release in your life is always going to be an MVP where the minimum has just been raised a bit because you can do more than the minimum now. So to give a quick answer as to when does testing end, it does. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but testing, I don't think necessarily it really ends. 
No, I think, I think you're right. Testing never ends because, because you, you're always hunting for a better solution. Add some value, take a little bit of pro, take a little bit of cost out, make it a bit more specific for a particular custom group based on the way, you know, the way our market footprint is. Um, we, we learned, um, we learned also that there was a lot we had to do in the back end because we were very, we were very focused on the customer front end. What would you see? What would you touch when you were making your insurance claim and how would that make you feel about yourself, the claim, the relationship with the insurance company and, and, and the, the, the value that you could place in that relationship? What's made an impact with the MVP in the, in the customer space was the, the kind of grunty stuff of getting the data that we collected into the core system. And um, that was a process of some nervousness for the insurance company customers. And we didn't take it seriously enough now, I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit. Um, we said that they could run it like um, you'd expect a startup to run it. You know, you'd, you'd, hire, you'd hire some some bright, grunty guys who would sit looking at the data sets and do co- copy and paste integration into the core system. And we didn't see this as a problem because we'd be dealing with hundreds in the testing process, hundreds of claims per week, not tens of thousands. So let's just let's let's make it work at the front end. Put the money there, and then once we've got that working uh, at yeah, a level we're all comfortable with, then we'll start investing in the middleware. Uh, and that frightens some in- insurance um, decision makers because it's not the way they used to work it. Okay, so this is actually a very very great point about testing. When you want to get your product out there, one of the first types of feedback that you will get is about the interface, right? But that is not necessarily the type of feedback you want to get. So make sure that in your MVP, if nothing else works and you're only solving one problem that you want to test, make sure that the user interface is nice because the first critique that you will get is, oh, I don't like where this button is. Oh no, it takes me way too long to get there, right? Make sure that looks good. But going back to what you said that, okay, within insurance, there's so many different people who actually take care of it, who actually get the insurance in the end that you will never be able to know everything about everything. And if I were to sit down now and devote a large amount of my time on researching everything there is to know about insurance, I could technically gather a lot of product knowledge, right? But how beneficial is that to me if I have never interacted with the customer and therefore lack customer knowledge? We could probably be in a room with, with, with coffee for weeks talking about this single point. I mean, the, the first question is, who is the customer? The customer of the insurance company is, you know, is everybody on this call and, and everybody we know. In terms of the product we are selling, I would argue that our, the customer I am seeking to serve through the software that we're deploying is the poor sod who's, made it, who's had a really bad day and needs to make an insurance claim. And nobody does that out of a sense of joy and fun. You know, you know it's going to be dreary. Um, but there is another customer here, and it's the customers within the decision-making process of the insurance company. Now, now at the top end, you've got a guy, I mentioned the chief exec. Here's a guy who wants to rebuild his, you know, his, his market position, uh, market position increasingly, and, uh, and offer something that's, you know, relevant's a bad word, but yeah, a little bit more interesting to the customers that they're failing to reach or take cost out of the organization or at least stop, stop editorials in, in the, in the in industry press about how old fashioned we all are. Below that guy, you have an unbelievable, God, I'm going to get sad now, an unbelievable number of layers of rent seekers. You know, guys who are just seeing it out, um, and just don't, just, they're just seeing out to their pensions, and many of them are still on final salary pensions, and they just don't want that much problem, problem stuff to go get in the way. And I can remember having a meeting with one guy. He said, "Yeah, I really get this. It would make claims easier for our customers, but why should we make claims easier for our customers? Because we'll get more then." 
and I, and I just wanted to hit the bastard. I really, <laughs> I really did. The um, or you get another guy, different different part of the problem. He'll say, you know, it is a good idea, but we could do it ourselves. So um, there's lots there's lots of ways in which the sale can fail, even if you get the CEO to buy in, because you only get to meet that guy once or twice, and the other people in the hierarchy are peeing in his or her ear every day of his what life. Would benefit people like us, as in like B two C. What could benefit me as an individual? So. How, when we say that you need to work with your customer in the testing phase and you need to really know who your customer is, how immensely complex is that in the B2B industry then? When I have to know everyone who's affected by this one single product, whereas if I wanted to make a new iPhone case, I would just have to speak to one person and ask, how do you like it? So the insurance industry is uh, very layered, very siloed, and it finds it very difficult to innovate. Uh, to me, that's a fabulous place to go if you've got an idea, as long as you do it in the right way, as opposed to, you know, would you, um, if you had a bright idea, would you take it to Google? <laughs> they, well, guess what? They've probably thought of it already. And they're probably doing it and they've got, they got test products out in, in eight or nine different markets. I think, I think we go back to the experience question here. You know, to, to what extent do you understand not just the market and the, 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 the place where you're trying to sell your product. So, you know, obviously some people based on their experience will be more interested in, in, in uh, B2B or, or B2C products, depending on, on where they've come from. But you've got to actually be able to make people trust you as, as a supplier. Now, that's the same if, you, if you're in a B2C market and you've got a B2C idea, you want the people who who see the software, who see the interface, who see the app, who have some dealings with you. You want those people to think these guys are okay and to tell their friends. It's exactly the same within a B2B offer or a B2B2C offer. You've got to um, make these, these guys feel comfortable dealing with you. And, and, and I guess the difference between dealing in the corporate world or selling into the corporate world as opposed to, you know, to, to customers is the guys, if you sell to customers, real customers, they're not going to check your CV and they're not going to ask you questions about why, you know, why you think you can do this. So, it, yeah, I, I can say I can understand your, your perspective on it. I think I think if you're going to try and bring some kind of change to, to the to the corporate world or, or corporately delivered uh, entrepreneurial offer, then you've got to know a little bit about about the industry. Um, otherwise, they won't trust you with their customers. OK, I think that serves as a great ending point as well. So to get back to the thing of going from a plan to a product, when does testing stop? It doesn't ever stop. Because the first product that you put out there and try to make money with, maybe beforehand you've done some testing rounds where you've given it out for free, but now you're asking for money for it. The people who will pay the money are early adopters. They will not want a final product. You will have to keep innovating. And you will never be able to stop doing your testing. And one of the things that I actually learned yesterday as well, don't take positive feedback just lightly. When someone tells you that they do like your product, ask them why and make that better for them as well. And guess what they're going to say? They're going to say, that's lovely. <laughs> and just, just pay no attention. If they say, fuck that shit, then that's probably, that's probably honest and effective advice. Okay, if they say that, get on with the rest of your day, never think about it again, never go back there. Um, if they say that's lovely, it doesn't mean it is, it means they're being polite. 
so that's a great way to actually test your friendships instead of a product. Just make something so incredibly stupid, give it to your friends, and if they still <laughs> like it, never speak to them again. How bad do I have to make this before you say it's crap? <laughs> this was the fifth episode of the Almost Founders podcast. Thank you, David, for your insights, and thank you to our sponsor, City Ventures. If you'd like to participate to one of our next events and ask questions directly to our guests, you can sign up and book your virtual seat on our website at almostfounders.com. Next up on the podcast will be Jack Lomas, co-founder of Sensat, AI tech startup that raised more than 10 million in funding. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.